Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and Shant Karnikian. That's me. Shant, how goes things today? Not bad. We're still under lockdown and we're recording remotely. So we're social distancing, which is great because I don't have to be with Brian. I don't have to spend time with him. But we still do I haven't seen Sean since since Sean was about 25 years old and he's now almost 35. So it's been a long time. Oh, yeah. I wish. Uh, But um, we have an interesting set of cases today here on Civil Action where we usually cover cases from the California uh, Court of Appeals. We cover cases from the California Supreme Court, uh, federal courts, and from the United States Supreme Court. Do you know where that is, Brian? That's in Washington, D.C. That's right. That's right. It's not in Sacramento. We're not covering any cases from the United States Supreme Court today. We're not covering any cases from the California Supreme Court. We're not covering any cases from the Ninth Circuit. All of our cases today come from the California Court of Appeal and uh, different ones. Today's topic is um, personal injury cases, cases that affect and have to do with personal injury practice. So generally, Sean, first tell people where they can find us, and second, let's kind of review quickly the cases that we're going to be talking about today, and let's dive in. They can find us online at kbklawyers.com, and we're on most social media platforms. We publish articles, we put on webinars, we have materials for uh, anyone to look at, and we're always open to hearing from you guys. Uh, But today, we're looking at four very interesting cases. First, we're going to look at a case that has to do with uh, referral fees, and when they are enforceable, and when they're not, and complying with uh, 2200 of the professional rules. And then we're going to look at a road design case and dangerous condition of public property and, and the standard for summary judgment in those types of cases. Then we're going to look at a case that has to do with the Prevet and Hooker doctrine um, and uh, the standards there. And more importantly, jury instructions and prejudicial error uh, under jury instructions. And lastly, we're going to look at a uh, very unfortunate outcome in a MedMal a uh, micro case that has to do with the standards for applicability of micro to physicians' assistants. So well, it's almost always unfortunate whenever you use the words micro. So this won't be any different. In fact, what we'll try to do is spend a little extra time on the last case because it's an interesting issue. And even though most lawyers probably don't do micro, most lawyers probably candidly on both sides of the aisle recognize the the sadness of the micro statute. So let's jump into our first case. We'll try to spend no more than about five minutes on each case, maybe a little less on the first three and a little more on the last one. But the first case is a case called Reeve versus Maleko. And this is a fee dispute lawsuit that had been filed between two lawyers, um, the, the plaintiff in the case being the referring attorney and the defendant in the case was the lawyer who actually handled um, what seems to be uh, an underlying personal injury case. And the facts of the underlying personal injury case uh, are really not in dispute here. Um, the case resulted in initially a, um, a settlement with one defendant for $3.375 million. And incidentally, the referral fee of 25% was paid in full. And then there was a second part of the case that was like a highway design case against the state of California that resulted in a $900,000 fee or $900,000 settlement with a much smaller fee and a much smaller um, referral fee of about $78,000 that wasn't paid. Yeah. And the issue here comes down to uh, the attorney that owes the referral fee arguing that he doesn't owe it because um, of some dispute he has. And Um, the referring attorney who's seeking the fee um, prevailed in a jury trial uh, and got all $78,000 that's owed to him and an award of 
almost $50,000 in prejudgment interest. And one of the things that came out during that trial is that the client here, who uh, the case was handled for, at some point signed and returned a letter from the attorney handling the case um, that apprised him of the fee arrangement with Reeve, the referring attorney. And But the client's signature appeared under the words, I, client, we'll leave his name out, uh, acknowledge receipt of this letter and understand the contents. And that's kind of where this all starts from. And that's the important point. Uh, I acknowledge okay, so let's, and understand. Let's reason. stop there. So here's what you have. You have the lawyer who accepted the referral, who prepared the letter and had the client sign it, and the client signed it saying that he acknowledged and understood the referral fee. But the word consent was missing, which seems to hang up this court. Now, let's go a little further with this, though, because if you can't tell, I'm a little outraged by this case. I think this is a, this is, uh, what is this, form over substance, really? Absolutely. The client then came in and testified in the jury trial that he consented to the fee split. He said, I consent to that. That is what I meant. And the lawyer, the referring attorney, was making the argument, look, maybe he didn't use the word consent, but he acknowledged it. He knew about it. He got on the stand. He knew about it. And the court awarded him, the jury awarded him the fees. The, the trial court awarded him the fees. The court of appeal reversed. Get a load of that. They reversed this. Yeah. Yeah. The focus here is I think hyper technical, but let's talk about what they focus on. They t- they look at uh, at the time it was Rule two two hundred, which is now Rule one point five point one, which says that you can't divide the fees unless um, the client has consented in writing thereto after a full disclosure and has been uh, that has been made in writing that a fee there's going to be a division of fees and the terms of such division. So consented in writing after a full disclosure. And that's what the court focuses on. But like Brian said, this guy came in and said that he actually consents. Uh, it's not like and there's some the issue. the lawyer that accepted the referral wrote the agreement. He's the master of the document. And I guess this is just a, a you know, the court said, well, that isn't consent. And the statute requires consent or the rule requires consent. And Shot and I have come to the conclusion that they change these rules every few years and change the numbers just to confuse us and change them up just a little bit, and which is exactly what they've done recently. But it doesn't change the ruling in this case. Now, the last part of this case is he tried to argue quantum merit, and they said the quantum merit claim is barred by the statute of limitations because the statute of limitations for quantum merit is two years. And he was trying to operate on a statute, on the four-year statute, based on the agreement. And the court said, ah, 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 you're not going to fool us. That's an unenforceable contract, so you can't use that. Ah, ah, ah. I think it is a very hyper-technical and very unfair decision. And my recommendation, if you're listening to this podcast right now, is put us on hold and go in your files and look at every referral agreement you have right now to see if it complies with the standard because a, um, a a disingenuous referring attorney can use this against you. All right. Anything else you want to add about that case, Sean? Because no. I got kind of hyped up about it and I don't want to I mean, rightfully so. I mean, rightfully so. It's super technical. They focus and they say, well, acknowledgement isn't necessarily consent. It's just wild. So the person who had the power to write this agreement, who screwed up in writing the agreement, is now benefiting from it, which is, I think, just an absurd outcome. But anyway, uh, we're not on the Court of Appeals, so we don't get a say in any of this. Um, But let's move on to the next case. 
case, Timon versus City of Newark. T-H-I-M-O-N. Timon, Timon, I'm not sure. Comes from the first District Court of Appeal. Thimmon. Thimmon. I'm going with Timon. Sure, sure. City of Newark is located where? It's in, uh, City of New York's in New Jersey. There's an nope, airport this there. This is in Alameda County. Nope, different, I've different been there. New York. I've been to New York. It's an airport in, it's, it's in New Jersey. Nope, no, but we're but not going to have this argument right now. There is a, there is a Newark in, uh, the County of Alameda. Okay. And that's where this case arose from. And the facts of this case are pretty much not in dispute. And this is another case I'm a little hyped up about because I think it's a bad decision. Um, in this case, this young girl, apparently, a minor at the time was on her way to school in the morning and she got hit by a car. Right. She was crossing a street. It's a four lane street where there's, uh, there's known to be high speeds and the driver that struck her, uh, acknowledged that he, he had the sun glaring in his eyes. He wasn't wearing sunglasses. He knew that that's an issue over there in that part of the uh, road and he struck her. So, uh, but this, this case is against the city of Newark for the road design over there. And the argument that the plaintiff was making through the garden at Lightham was that, um, there was a defect in the road design because they knew that this is a dangerous stretch of road. There's high speeds. Um, and there's, glare in people's eyes yet they still painted a crosswalk there and, and encouraged people to basically cross over there so the city of newark files a motion for summary judgment contending among other things that this intersection uh does not constitute a dangerous condition of public property and that the plaintiff could not show that it was a dangerous condition so you know maybe, maybe so what are the standard for a dangerous condition let's right. talk about the standard for it i mean remember anytime you sue public entity it's found in the government code the standards found basically in the government code and the common law and here it's no different a dangerous condition uh is that the government could be sued for injuries caused by any kind of dangerous condition caused on public property and then you have the limiting factors to that um the most important of which is that if viewing the evidence, and I'm just quoting here, most favorably to plaintiff, uh, there's a matter of law, it could be determined that it's a minor, trivial, or insignificant nature of the defect uh, given the circumstances, and that there is um, not really a substantial risk of harm or injury, then they can find as a matter of law that the public entity is not liable. Right. That's the standard on summary judgment. It comes from a case called Cordova, and it says that basically if the condition didn't create a substantial risk based on on the evidence, looked at, like Brian said, most favorably to the plaintiff, then there's no liability for the dangerous condition against the public entity. So that's that's kind of the standard. Substantial risk is the standard here. And All right. So why are we kind of hyped about this case? Okay, let's talk about what happened here. So the court first says that, okay, the city um, proffered enough evidence to establish their burden on summary judgment, that there's no triable issue of fact and, and there's, no, uh, there's no risk. Um, they said there's no blind corners, there's no elevation variances, there's no trees blocking views. Um, the crosswalk is painted with white lines so the drivers can see. There's signs about warning about intersections. And they also find that, look, the driver concedes he knew of the issues the police found that he violated the vehicle code. Um, there's no history of collisions in the last 10 years involving pedestrians. And this, that fact alone shows that a driver exercising due care 
wouldn't have caused the accident. So there's, there isn't a substantial risk because we know this driver wasn't using due care, apparently. There's no substantial risk. But then it shifts over to the plaintiff. The plaintiff comes back with a number of factors that I find credible and I think a jury should have been allowed to consider. They talk about the width of the roadway, the high speeds of traffic, lack of traffic controls, the glare of the sun, uh, no pedestrian activated lights or, or signals or anything like that to mitigate it. And, and they say that, look, you know, given all of these factors, they shouldn't have put a crosswalk over there. But does it end there? Is, is it just based on no. argument, Brian? Or is there, no, is there because, some type of expert expert involved here? Right, because the plaintiff actually went out and had an expert who had apparently good credentials. The court doesn't dispute that the expert had credentials, at least. And um, they rip apart the they rip apart the basis or the rationale for, for this expert. So let's kind of go through what they said. First, uh, they said that you can't rely on the expert because um, the engineering expert um, theorized that a marked crosswalk um, could increase the likelihood that a pedestrian would walk there. Yes, that's what crosswalks do. So then they said that going through um, the fact that whether or not they would have crossed there or not crossed there was really speculative. And then they said that, that um, crosswalks, the, the experts said a crosswalk creates a trap. And they said, well, we don't agree with that, which kind of is the same thing, because isn't that why we have crosswalks? So they, they rip it apart. They rip the expert apart. And then they come to the conclusion that the overwhelming weight of the authority, because they threw out the expert, the overwhelming weight of authority um, goes in favor of the government and that there's, uh, as a matter of law, there is no um, claim here for a dangerous condition. And the final fact they raised was that there hadn't been any similar collisions for over 10 years, which, you know, I, I mean, in, in, at some level, yeah, they, they have a point about some of this, but, you know, I thought that not, these it, cases, the cases are, it's getting thrown out without having a, a finder of fact, the jury look at it. And that's why I think it's absurd. A jury could have found, came to these conclusions. A jury could have looked at it and gone, ah, there hasn't been any accidents there in 10 years. How would they have been unnoticed? This isn't a dangerous condition, but this is the, we got to keep in mind, this is the court throwing it out before it gets to be tried on the merits to a jury. So that's what I find absurd. And I also think that this whole 10-year standard starts creating a slippery slope because what about next time around there's a similar case, someone comes in and goes, yeah, it's been six years since the last accident. Okay, fine, we're going to throw it out again. Well, what if we get down to six months at some point? You know, Where do we draw the line? This is a slippery slope. I think a jury should have decided this. I don't think uh, this is one yeah, of those and where there's we've, no we've evidence. Had, we've, we've reviewed cases. I, one in particular in my mind sticks out from the 4TCA that's very similar where they um, ignore all the evidence that the plaintiff marshals almost as if they're looking for a reason or excuse to let the governmental entity off the hook. All right. Our next case is uh, Alana's versus Sun Pacific Shippers. So the facts of this case, this is the Prevent Hooker case. Uh, and Sean will talk about Prevent Hooker in a second, which just means he knows it and understands it better than I do. Um, but the basic fundamental facts here is that the plaintiff in this case was a truck driver employed by a third party. Uh, he was um, delivering or picking up um, uh, stuff from Tr Sun Pacific, which grows mandarin oranges, which are delicious. Yep. And there was another separate subcontractor there who was responsible, I guess, for forklift operation or something like that. And they had a fellow named Reynoso who was driving the forklift. And to make a long story short, um, 
uh, Alans, Alans, Alanas rather fell off the truck and onto the ground. And then the forklift truck driver drove over him. And then the poor guy just wanted to finish his shift, undoubtedly to get paid. And he took another four or five hours. And then at the end of his shift, went and got medical care. And it turns out he had a horrible injury. This case went to a jury verdict of um, to about two and a half million dollars uh, in favor of him, in favor of the injured worker, and against um, the the uh, a variety of people, but notably Sun Pacific. So that takes us right into to Prevet and the fact that the jury was not given a Prevet instruction. Uh, instead, the court gave a, a pure negligence instruction. Right, and under Prevet. Uh, Prevet basically says that someone hiring an independent contractor is only liable to the employees of that independent contractor for premises liability when there's a hazardous condition on, on the hirer's property that was concealed. And then under Hooker, which kind of these, these two principles go hand in hand, the hirer, that same company that's hiring an independent contractor is only liable to the employees of that independent contractor for negligence if they affirmatively contribute to the harm, if they increase the risk, or if they give an instruction to the employee of their independent contractor that, that makes something more dangerous for them, that injures them. And those are kind of, you know, those are sort of set in stone, you know, they're California, they're longstanding principles. And the, the issue here is on appeal, defendant is arguing that the jury, uh, the jury wasn't given this instruction. The court just gave them a negligence instruction. So this uh, court of appeal is reviewing it on a prejudicial error type of standard, right, Brian? Right, and I mean, I think that's that's really the important part of this case is to understand what the standard is for failing to give a particular jury instruction. Because I'm sure what acted out here in the trial court was the defense asked for the prevent instruction. There was argument. The plaintiff objected to it. There was argument, and the court ultimately decided that it wasn't prevent situation. It gave a negligence, so now it comes to the court. So the first thing the court looks at in these cases to determine if there's reversible error, if there was a, and I'm going to be very careful with these words, reasonable probability that in the absence of the jury instruction, a result more favorable to the um, appealing party would have been reached. So really what we're talking about there is reasonable probability that it would have been reached or in in other words is it is there a reasonable probability that this jury instruction the jury might have reached a different result so i don't want people to think it's a a high high standard but you've got to show some reasonable probability right i i kind of struggle with this not not because I'm, I'm i'm slow and i struggle with most things but I, I i do all kidding aside i struggle with this because I, the standard is reasonable probability that a jury would have reached another decision and we were talking about this before we recorded and brian pointed out look at the end of the day it's still reasonable probability it's not it's not that Yes, of course, the jury would have reached another decision. It's is there a reasonable probability that the jury would have reached another decision? So, um, and then they flip you know, it on their head later, and they say the court says there is a reasonable probability that the jury based its negligence verdict on erroneous instructions. So, I see that as a variation, but a different variation. Yeah, that's a, a good way to look at it, I guess, to conceptualize it. And, and over here, you know, ultimately they say, look, the jury wasn't told that the only duty that some Pacific had here was to make sure that there's no concealed dangers to them, for example, under Prevet. 
um, or uh, or under Hooker that they shouldn't have contributed to the harm. All they said was they had to use reasonable care and maintain a safe condition on its property. And and I, I think I would agree, sure, that that's not the standard under Prevet and Hooker. The, the standard there is a little bit higher. And the court says that, look, if the jury had been given that instruction, there is a reasonable probability that they would have reached another decision. So they they reverse and, and send it back. Yeah, and that wasn't the only issue from the case, too. And the reason in the beginning of the case I mentioned the facts that he waited four or five hours to get medical care, apparently there was some evidence that that further caused his injury. Um, and his injury could have been treatable if he had gotten immediate medical care, and it's his own fault. And so that was the other grounds for reversing the case was that the trial court didn't give a jury instruction on mitigation of damages based on his failure to seek care. And the court looked at that and again, applying the same standard, they said it was error. So um, again, these jury instructions, you know, I know people say it often, but these jury instructions make a difference. And I've had trial judges say to me before, hey, this is, listen carefully, counsel, because this is where the appeals come from. And they know that. And be careful what you ask for, too, I think, Brian. You've always said that to me when we're dealing with jury instructions. Hey, you ask for something like this. You want a regular negligence instruction, even though there's a pretty good chance Prevent and Hooker is going to apply? Well, you're going to have to deal with it on appeal. So be careful what you wish for. Right. All right. So our last case today is, uh, you know, another trip to to the world of micro-tragedy. And uh, this case is Lopez versus Ledesma and others. Um, and uh, we'll take a little bit of time to go through the facts here because it, it it's a horrible outcome, not unlike almost every micro case I've ever come in contact with. Our firm doesn't really do medical malpractice, but in 2014, I ran a statewide initiative to try to change the micro initiative, the micro statute, bring it more in line. And as you probably know, the limit on medical malpractice. Um, cases for pain and suffering in California is $250,000. That's the cap. And in this case, we have a young girl who was um, four years old at the time she died. And it seems to be without dispute that she had seen two physician's assistants employed by medical doctors um, starting at eight months old for a lesion on her um, on her head. And that lesion um, turned out to be a melanoma, which metastasized, and um, the cancer killed the poor girl. And this went to a court trial with a more than $4 million verdict for um, non-economic damages, which was cut to $250,000 pursuant to the micro statute. So uh, starting off with those sad facts, and then we move into what the case is really about, which is whether or not physicians' assistants are um, subject to MICRA? I think the answer is yes, but when they're not subject to MICRA, and that's really the meat of the case. Right, when they're not subject to the protections that MICRA gives to uh, healthcare providers. And, and really the standard here is when they're, provi- when they're operating in a capacity for which they are not licensed um, is the general standard for MICRA. It only applies when they're operating in their capacity. Um, but when it comes to physicians' assistants, uh, th- there's something unique there because it's not really, they, they don't necessarily have like a board licensure or anything like that. Um, all they're required to do is be operating under the supervision of a physician. 
And that's where this case really kind of, I think, the rubber meets the road, and that's where the real issue is. Over here, these physician's assistants were not being actually supervised, but they did have these agreements, these consulting agreements with the doctors um, that said that the doctors are going to be supervising them, that they're working for the doctors. And that's those agreements are what the court really focuses on. And unfortunately, tragically, finds that they are supervised by doctors because here, look at these agreements that say that they're going to be supervised by doctors. And it's, they say that that's all the law requires and that's enough. And they go through sets of tragic examples where there, it, it wouldn't be the case that there is supervision. Um, and the one that they, I, I found, you know, the extreme example that they give, they go, it, it doesn't, micro doesn't apply when a psychologist, for example, performs heart surgery. So we have to get that extreme to be able to really recover the value of a case when you have a tragic death as a result of me- medical negligence. You need a psychologist performing heart surgery. So remember. But if a psychologist medicine. is treating you and induces you to have sexual relationships with him or her, that psychologist is subject to micro. Or the protections. Yep. Of That's exactly one of the cases that they cite to. They say, "Look, a psychiatrist who engages in sexual misconduct takes advantage of you and your vulnerable position, and 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 uh, sexually abuses you." Then micro applies because that arises out of their professional services. That arises out of prof- which is absurd because I didn't realize that one of the professional services a, psychi- a psychiatrist offers is to sexually abuse people or take advantage of them. Um, same thing with uh, the situ- another situation they, they look at, another actual published case uh, where you have an unlicensed social worker um, who, who screws up, and, but the court says in that case that they are a healthcare provider because they're practicing under a registration with the state or governmental entity that allows them to work towards licensure. That's like saying that a law student who's registered with the state bar as being law school, which is something you do in your first year now, um, is is an attorney technically because you know they've registered with the bar that they're working towards becoming an attorney. Yeah, it's just it's really absurd. Uh, These outcomes are just kind of crazy. I mean, Um, this is these are these are absurd facts and undermine micra in my opinion because here you have a couple of physicians assistants who you basically had doctors at least from the facts in this case barely had a pulse and simply because the discipline the doctors worked in was the discipline that the physician assistants were were practicing and there was no realistic supervision of the of the physician's assistants the court says nope micra no, it's micro. That's what the statute was intended for, and that's what we're going to apply is is micro. And then they go through a number of reasons. If I could just run through these quickly, shot that I found you know offensive. Uh, the regular the regulatory scheme suggests that that the supervising physician is all that's required. Uh, the standard for determining whether a physician's assistant is acting outside of scope. Um, is is only based is should not be based on the adequacy of supervision. Uh, that the rule that um, if you came up with a rule that the adequate supervision was the guide, it would be difficult to monitor. And a rule that treats physicians' assistance outside the conduct of the scope of the light the licensed physician um, would be impossible. So they want a bright line rule, and that's what Micro calls for is a bright line rule. And then at the very end of the opinion, and I love this, 
the very end of the opinion, they said, hey, if the legislature disagrees with the line we draw, it's, of course, free to establish a different rule. Yeah, good luck. It's been more than 40 years since Micro's been in the books, and we can't get the legislature to do anything with it. But that's not really the end of the case, is it, Chuck? It's not. There's a dissent and a very well-reasoned, well-written dissent that has its own like legal standard and factual section because the facts are important here. And uh, the author of the dissent starts going through the facts and highlights highlights the fact that it, it's beyond dispute that the two physician's assistants were not actually being supervised by a doctor. They were both functioning autonomously. That's the words that are used, autonomously, on their own. In fact, one of the doctors that was supposed to be supervising literally was not available either in person or even electronically while the physician's assistant was caring for this patient. Um, They were basically not there. And the um, dissenting justice highlights the fact that the majority simply looks at this agreement. There's, in fact, an undated agreement that that says, yep, I'm going to be supervising. And they say that that's enough to meet the requirement. Um, So then the dissent looks at the Business and Professions Code, Section 3501, which requires supervision, actual supervision by a doctor over a physician's assistant. And he says, if we use this agreement standard, if we use just the existence of an agreement to find supervision, that effectively nullifies the requirement of actual supervision. It is an absurd result. And he says, or she says, I decline to nullify that requirement because why have a supervision requirement if you're not going to see if they're being supervised and you're just going to look at a, a, a document that exists? So Yeah, it's just an absurd decision, and it just highlights, as I said before, how absurd Micra is and how the life of a child can't be worth $250,000. So uh, we could you know, dedicate an entire program to how outrageous Micra is and how difficult it is, especially today um, with the outpouring of love and affection, most of which is due for almost every doctor and healthcare provider. But when you look at the facts and circumstances and you see things like this, um, it makes you mad. It makes you outraged. And that's all we have for today. We'll end on that note. Sean, where can they find us? What can they do about it? Uh, what can they do about us? They can file their complaints with the FCC. No, they can find us online at no, KBK. We're not subject to the FCC. <laughs> we're not. Thank yeah. God. Unfortunately, uh, you got to keep listening to us. No, you can find us online at kbklawyers.com. Uh, we ask that if you are listening to this, please go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're able to rate us or comment because we do appreciate your feedback. It, it's great to hear, you know, suggestions. What are we currently rated as far as legal podcasts in the whole United States? At some point in term, uh, for legal and government podcasts, we were like number 78 or something. At some point, I think we lost that ranking, but that's not bad. That's not bad. We probably have like five or six listeners at this point. We might that's be in great. double digits. I feel, yeah. I feel sorry for number. I thought we were number 18 for just legal podcasts. Just pure legal podcasts. We, we might have been. It, it, it jumps up and down and then people realize what it is and they stop. Listening. I feel sorry for number 19. Yeah. Well, thank you folks for listening. We appreciate it.